Hello, Matthew Grant here, and in a few moments we'll be heading into the studio for a live recording with Hayley Maynard and Duncan Gemmell of Chaucer. Now we hear a lot about what technology companies are doing these days, but it's also good to find out what the buyers of technology and those deploying underwriting capital are up to. So hang in there for some great perspectives on what's new, what's working, and what's coming in the future. So Hayley, Duncan... Great to have you here. I'm very pleased we're actually doing this sat down on the sofa, Haley, because the last meeting I had with you, you took me on a walking meeting around London and it was quite exhausting. And as invigorating as it was, I'm not quite sure that we could have had a, uh, a productive discussion. So, Chaucer, you're a leading specialty insurance group providing support around the world, partly through Lloyd's, partly through the company market, based in London, but you've got about 500 people worldwide. I'm really interested to see that actually of those, 120 are underwriters. So it's a kind of good ratio of underwriting to everyone else. Syndicate 1084 is what you're writing through Lloyd's, where you've got a capacity of 1.5 million, of which is about 1.8 in US dollars, I think. And, and then you've put you in one of the top 10 insurers in Lloyd's. I see, founded back in 1922, and you're offering insurance and reinsurance across a whole wide range of classes around the world. Duncan, you are Chief Strategy Officer, which makes you responsible for strategy, corporate development, marketing, distribution, and innovation at Chaucer. And Haley, you're Head of Innovation with responsibility for driving and delivering Chaucer's innovation agenda across the group. So Duncan, you started off your career as an energy underwriter, and then you had your own analytics business. You've been at Chaucer for 15 years. Can you talk a little bit about what it means to be looking after strategy at Chaucer? As you said, Matthew, we had our 100-year anniversary last year, so we've done a few things right over time, we've had a strategic agenda for the last six or seven years around growth and transformation. We think growth is really important in order to maintain influence, in order to be able to generate the returns we need for our shareholder while enabling the right customer focus and in order to evolve and be the success that we need to have in the future. The transformation is around what we do and how we do it, but particularly how we do it. We have what we call a narrow and deep mantra, which means if we're going to do something, we really need to do it well and be seen to be doing it well and otherwise we need to be more open to partnering with other people who we do see as doing it well most of the 500 employees at chaucer their focus is more around delivering on the short term so our challenge is around encouraging a little more focus on the long term in order to do that so strategy is central to looking at that future and the change that we need to embrace I think it's important to note that innovation sits within strategy. So I actually sit within the strategy team. And I think that, you know, the way we call out innovation, we do it more, I think, as an external feature to the market so they know who to come into. But ultimately, we think of innovation as merely a tool of strategy. What got us here won't get us there, right? So we need to test future profit pools. We need to, in a low-cost, super-efficient, and limited downside way, test out what could be next? What could be the future? And so therefore, innovation is merely just a, a tool to do that. Can you just display a bit more what that means when you talk about innovation from the outside? So people outside, outside of Chaucer know who to go to, know who to contact with an idea, with an opportunity, with something to discuss. They know who to collaborate with. They know who's going to, who's the kind of the point person at Chaucer with whom you can connect that can take something or do something with whatever it is you're bringing. And can you give me one or two examples of where you've been applying innovation to the established business. You mentioned that we're a successful company. We're a top 10 in terms of size. We're one of the top and always in the top quartile in terms of Lloyd's performance. But we're successful today because of what we did yesterday. And there's not really anything to improve because nothing is fundamentally wrong. We need to acknowledge that what got us here won't get us there. 
And therefore, we need to set up thoughtful, contained experiments that are incredibly focused, that test that test strategic hypotheses across multiple time horizons. I think a good example might be terrorism and political violence, which is a class of business that Chaucer are, have been very successful in over a long period of time. It's one of the more commoditized classes in our world, and therefore it's easy to for competitors to come in. It's a class that can be profitable. Clearly, there are years when things go wrong and it becomes not profitable. It's a class that it attracts competition. And therefore, in order to stay ahead, we have to continue to think about our product and think about the distribution. It's a rapidly evolving market and both product and distribution innovation is important. So you're talking about the political violence insurance coverage as a offering to your clients. But is it a simple way of describing if I was buying political violence coverage, what am I actually being covered for? You're being covered for the financial loss arising from damage to your property arising out of an explosion or civil insurrection and the like. Some examples of some innovation that we've done in that space, though, would be our partnership with Complex, where we tried to apply the parametric as a tool in order to pay small businesses following a terrorism event, like Duncan said. And I think more recently, when COVID hit, we had a hypothesis that this could be this could be the event that syndicates the the pandemic market in a similar way that 9-11 um, sort of syndicated the political violence market. And so we actually launched a pandemic parametric product in Canada. And I think that these are just some examples of how that team is continuing to set up very controlled experiments to test new ways of accessing different markets or even same markets, but different tools and different products that might be, that might yield more value as customer needs kind of change and evolve. Experiments are often the way that technology companies look at testing out new propositions. What were the lessons for you and Jules, both, I guess, in terms of the idea of using experiments and then anything that you feed back into what you're doing more broadly around innovation? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the number one lesson we've learned is, is probably quite obvious, and that's the need to be working directly with customers when we build the product. And that we can't just build this, build a generic product and try and sell it to anyone. We have to work with very, very specific people on very, very specific problems. And that's where we get the greatest traction and the greatest, the greatest sales, really. And then just given the noise market is entirely intermediary or broker driven, when you're talking about learning from your customers, how does that dynamic work? Because you're kind of one step removed from your customers. So we work with brokers, we work with cover holders, we work with partners who understand the importance of having direct customer engagement. For example, when we built the Gaia product with Beasley, we had a, a group of 32 customers that were constantly feeding into the product design. So anytime we were making a change to any aspect of it, we went back and asked these people, said, does this fit? Is this still right? Is this still what you want? Is this still what you, what you need? Does this still fit for purpose? And I think that's the reason Gaia has been so successful. And let's talk about Gaia because that has been successful for a number of reasons. Also, for those that are not familiar with it, that and you can talk a little bit more about the coverage, but it's it's basically insurance protection for people going through IVF treatment who essentially if the treatment is not successful, they get insurance that pays back some of the treatment costs. Lots of reasons that why people find that so intriguing. One is it's quite an unusual product for Lloyds, but Lloyds, of course, historically has been insuring unusual products. So it was really good to see that come through the Lloyd's Lab, I know you, Haley, and a number of others were behind it. But can you just ex explain a little bit more about how that product works and what are the lessons for that for other things that could be successful coming in from outside the market? 
Perhaps if we step back and I answer the second part of your question first, I think what we as an industry have gotten better at doing, and perhaps even as a planet, is realizing that we can't do everything ourselves. And that's I think that's a broader question that other industries, other companies are definitely discussing. But where I think we at Chaucer definitely are at is that we recognize we can't do everything in-house. And then it comes down to, okay, well, what are we really good at? And I think that we're really good at insurance. We're really good at insurance and we're good at it because we have a lot of experience doing it. And to be honest, we really love it. But what we're not that good at is we're not that good at understanding markets and understanding customers because we are a few links away from the customer. So what we look for in a partner is true market understanding and true customer understanding and indeed dialogue and communication. And when I say a customer, they don't have to be a paying customer as of yet. It's just someone who would potentially buy this product in the future if it's not yet available. And I think with Gaia, why it was so successful is because the team at Gaia are second to none. They're experts, passionate experts within their space. And they bring customers. And so they bring that market and they bring that customer knowledge. And why it's been successful is because we built a very specific product for a very specific need. And and it didn't exist. How do you encourage your underwriters to you know, give the time that's required for some early stage businesses that are probably not going to drive a lot of difference on their revenue initially? They've got their end day jobs. They're compensated often by their results. What is it about what you're doing at Chaucer with those 120 underwriters to get them to, to actually spend some time working with these organizations that you're putting in front of them? I think that the very best people in all industries crave change, want change, drive change. And innovation is just change. Typically don't like change. But the top underwriters, the top anyone, will always be striving for change, always trying to trying to push the limits of what is possible. And so I think that naturally, as a company, I think we're naturally a company of innovators. But really, I think all that structured innovation does is help you get the most bang for your buck because innovation will happen organically anyway. But you're going to get the most return for it if you actually invest in a function, if you build the infrastructure somewhere where people, where in underwriters or indeed anyone, actuarial exposure management, some of our best ideas don't actually come from underwriting. If you have a place where people can take something new that they want to build or that they want to try. And so I think that 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 would be, I think, something unique that we have is this, the way we work and just the people that we employ. And the way we work is important because there is a real latent appetite, a real latent desire across the company to be creative, to be enterprising, to be innovative. And that was, if you like, the first challenge of rolling out our innovation agenda maybe two or three years ago was to crystallize that cultural principles and to recognize that, yeah, that is an important facet of what we need to do. But you're right, that's not to say that there are inevitably pressures of everyone's busy, everyone's diligently doing what they do, and we're asking them to do things slightly differently or to think slightly differently always. And therefore, there was always the pressure to continue doing what people are doing. And so it's about reminding people to tap into, as you said, that, that great talent, the great opportunity, the great inherent desire to do so. But we've got to continue to yeah, remind people that that's the case. So climate's obviously very big on the agenda for lots of reasons, climate today, climate in the future. You're working with Kita that are offering a very interesting product to protections for carbon credits. But can you just expand a little bit more, Haley, on what it is you're doing with Keisha and why you found them a partner you wanted to work with? We think that there are five major areas that could be big. And there are, there are many more, but these are the ones we've chosen to focus on. So that's weather, 
climate change, intangibles, truly new markets, and parametrics as a tool. And so naturally, we are always on the hunt for for interesting companies doing new and different things within these spaces. So for us, climate change, we think that there, yes, there is a tremendous amount of risk that is associated with climate change, but there's also there's also an immaculate amount of opportunity that is coming that is coming out of this global trend. So uh, when we found Kita, we immediately liked what they're doing because they're really trying to enable the carbon market. Um, so they're trying to be the first, the world's first dedicated carbon insurer. And that market is, it's quite a nascent market. And it is, it struggles with being, with efficiency given that it is so young. And so I think fundamentally what Kita are trying to do are to unlock trapped capital, um, to enable risk, to use it risk transfer to enable that market to function more smoothly and ultimately to draw out more carbon from the atmosphere, which is absolutely required for us to meet any sort of global target that we would agree, whether that's one and a half or two. Eddie, you mentioned mentioned trapped capital in there. For those that don't understand what that is, can you explain it? What we have in the carbon market is that we have nature-based solutions. So these are these are removals solutions, whether that's trees or seaweed or mangroves that are pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it in the ground. Um, these are called nature-based solutions, right? But the thing about nature-based solutions, especially forestry, so trees, is that they take a long time to grow and therefore sequester the carbon. There's this risk that corporate buyers have when they buy a carbon credit that doesn't actually convert into a carbon credit for a few years. So they they buy a carbon credit from a forestry project, but it won't actually convert to a carbon credit for a few years. There's this inherent risk that then the buyer carries for a few years until the carbon credit converts, that the trees might burn down or that the the operator of the forest might just walk away and stop caring for these trees. And so Kita's first product addresses this under-delivery risk that a corporate buyer takes when they buy And the reason they have to forward buy these carbon credits is that there's a dearth of supply in the market. So everybody wants to buy nature-based solutions because they're, you know, super high quality, because they're actually removing carbon from the atmosphere and storing it in the ground. There just isn't the supply. And so people have to buy them in advance, if you will. And so there's a number of other examples where where there are tremendous inefficiencies in the market due to it being such a a young field. And I know you're looking at a couple of areas, both making the existing business more successful, which you talked a bit about, and and looking for new business areas. Can you explain how that works in practice? So again, reminder, the purpose of innovation is to test future profit pools, because what got us here won't get us there. So always that's our mantra. And I guess we think about it across across Horizon One, which is kind of this developing our existing lines and working with our existing lines on setting up experiments to really push the boundaries. That would be sort of the pandemic parametric product or, you know, the complex that we mentioned before on the political violence side. But we also build out experiments for, for Horizon Two and Horizon Three. We call this internally sowing seeds. And so these are kind of the five key future profit pools that we think could be big in the future weather, climate change, intangibles, truly new markets, and and parametrics. And can you give some examples that would have been successful for you in the last couple of years? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say Kita, who we just launched sort of in January, they're within the climate change space. Gaia, we would call a truly new market that IVF, sort of really IVF warranty market, um, we think is is quite new. K2 parametric, very much obviously within within the parametric space. So that's a parametric NatCap product. Crown Jewel, which is a, a cover holder we just launched in the last few weeks, and that's trade secret insurance. Okay, well, trade secrets insurance is something we don't hear about very often 
Can you just explain a little bit more about how that works in practice? So within the intellectual property market, you have two main types of assets. You have sort of registered assets, which is really what I think a lot of people think about when they think about intangibles or intellectual property. And that's, you know, that's patents, trademarks, copyrights. And then there's then there's secret stuff. You know, there's stuff that that you don't tell other people about, you know, and you can't patent because patents have a shelf life because they take a long time to get and because by their nature they're public, and so they therefore invite copycats. You know, things like the recipe for Coke or the recipe for WD-40. These would be examples of trade secrets. And historically, there has been no cover for these. I never knew WD-40 had a special secret ingredient. Absolutely. (laughs) It's the 40th try. Yeah, so just a bit of context to the Crown Jewel and our intellectual property insurance. That intangibles theme that we're looking to develop is really in service of that recognition that balance sheets these days for companies, as we know, quoted statistic that 90% of balance sheets these days is intangible assets rather than tangible assets. And the assertion that insurance typically addresses physical assets, tangible assets, and not intangible assets. So we've done quite a lot of work looking into that and to seeing to what extent we can understand that and help address it. And actually, our working conclusion at the moment is it's a very nuanced topic in the sense that one of the reasons perhaps that insurance isn't serving that asset class as well is that the demands are very specific to the segments and indeed to the companies. The nature of those intangible assets are many and varied and therefore the ability to put a generic insurance product is very difficult. Hence Crown Jewel, which is very specific and, and targeted, and we think any other products will be very specific and targeted, but the ability for insurance to address that very significant part of corporate balance sheet is a long way off. And it plays back to your earlier point about narrow and deep, exactly that, which is if you try and have it too generic, it doesn't really serve the need. You've got a couple of examples. I, What I see is also that it's very difficult often to get the data to be able to measure those intangible risks. Cyber is one of the intangible risks. You know, clearly, there's a well-developed market for that now. But the classic way for an insurance company to manage its business is to manage the aggregation risk with intangibles because it's harder to analyze it. It's harder to understand the intangible risk. Is that one of the, one of the barriers you're seeing? That new emerging risks and then therefore the insurance products that ensue trying to cover these. I think that not always, but commonly we go away, we assess that, and then we come back with an all risks policy that probably tends to be a bit too expensive. And because it's not you know a regulatory mandated product, tends to get low uptake. And I don't think that approach is necessarily wrong because having that product enables carriers to have better, deeper, more meaningful conversations with customers about these risks that are emerging. And I think that, you know, we've had, like Duncan said, we've had a number of these and we continue to have a number of these with companies to try and understand how do you think about these exposures? What do you truly care about? And I think a lot of companies are quite nascent in that journey. And the more they talk about it, the more they reflect on it. And indeed, the more they they have losses or you know they have events that cause any kind of disruption, then they start to learn about what is it about this risk that I truly care about? What is it about reputation exposure that I truly care about? Is it absolutely anything that could cause a reputation event? Or is it indeed... I'm not sure about who all of the suppliers are in my supply chain. And then you've been doing a lot around ESG, and I know you're very focused around measuring, and you can maybe talk about which part of the environmental, societal governance area you look at. But can you just talk about how are you doing that and why are you doing it? I think that 
macro factors in the last few years, just as with anyone, have really forced us to shift from an ESG approach that might be sort of implicit, so implicitly built into our culture. We hire good people, we run our business in an ethical way to explicit. And because of that, I think we started to have more targeted conversations around, okay, well, what does ESG actually mean at Chaucer? Where are we now and and sort of where do we want to get to? And I think if you look at any of our sustainability reports, they'd tell you that our vision is to really ensure the transition, right? So we want to help our partners through, all of our partners who want to transition, we want to enable that, enable that journey because we recognize that it's not, it's not binary. It will take time. And then building on that, you're doing some work with Moody's to create a balanced scorecard. Can you explain how that works? It comes down to fundamentally, if we want to ensure the transition, we can't move what we can't measure. So we've created this balanced scorecard using a number of our people and across our organization. We pulled together this, we call it the balanced scorecard. So it's 158 data points across the E, the S, and the G. And, you know, these range anything from greenhouse gas emissions to, you know, diversity and inclusion policies at organizations, right? And then we needed someone to sort of power this scorecard because we don't have all of this, we don't have all of these data points across all of our partners, across underwriting investments operations. So we scoured the market and we found Moody's to be the first in class, if you will. And so they're, the amount of investment they've made into the ESG space in terms of acquisitions and tools they've built and resources that they've acquired, I think is second to none. And so we we partnered with them to launch this this balanced scorecard that effectively measures all of our counterparties against each of these criteria. And then in terms of the companies you're working, we've spoken before, one of the things I found really interesting about what you're doing is you're really keen to work with all sorts of companies, but one of the categories of companies is organizations that have established a presence outside of insurance, already got data and its customers, and are seeing an opportunity to go into insurance. Can you talk a little bit about how that works out in, in practice? I'd just say that we're agnostic if you come from insurance or you don't come from insurance. The main sort of four triage criteria we have are within the market that you're in, could it be big? It doesn't have to be big now, but could it be big? The people, do they bring enough market and expertise and and customer knowledge in terms of the customer problem that we think we can build something with? Do they have direct access with a customer, either someone paying for their product or service now or someone who potentially would want to? And is it strategically aligned? So does it align with one of our core classes or with any of those five strategic themes that, that we sort of outlined before? So whether climate change, intangibles, truly new markets, and parametrics. If you look across the industry, there's 5,000 insurance companies out there. What was it you'd say that you're doing that distinguishes you from those other 4,999? So I'd say that there are three broad you know, categories of models. You have the everywhere model. This tends to be more common outside of Lloyd's, um, especially with, you know, general insurance and, and retail lines. And I think with this model, the main strategic rationale is cultural change. And so everyone in the organization has an innovation KPI. And I think that that probably does drive incremental change, but probably is less good at driving commercial outcomes. On the other end of the scale, I'd say you have this kind of over their model, which is innovation is in an innovation underwriting team or in a lab or in a garage. Basically, it's siloed away from the main business. And I think in this model, it works really well if commercial outcomes are really what you're driving for. And it's less good at cultural change because it can actually drive this kind of culture of us and them. All of these things are things that that can be managed, but 
in general, I, I think we'd see that. And then there's this this other model that I think that Chaucer, um, we're unique in this model that we run. There are maybe some others in the market, but it's definitely not as common. And that's this you know hybrid or dual operating model. And that's where there's one point person for the outside world to come, you know, to come to Chaucer. They come through this one person. That's me. But then that we have a team of people around the business who have an and role, you know. So you're you're the head of wordings and the lead. Uh, wordings individual. You're the head of claims legal and you're the lead innovation claims for across across our entire business. And so I think what's unique about us is that when you come to work with us, we truly do draw on the expertise and the genius across all of Chaucer. And then we haven't talked much about investment. It's kind of been in the background. But how do you think about innovation investment? How does your approach differ to somebody that is actually making or some company that's making a investment as a strategic investor in, in the organizations they're working with? We're really pleased. We've Our innovation agenda has evolved and our innovation toolkit, if you will, has, has evolved. In addition to our support and our provided provision of underwriting capacity, we've started to make financial investment in the businesses in whom we partner, which we think is a really important step in terms of positioning and enhancing our relationship with them. It's it's different from a classic. We're not in any way competing with capital vehicles. This is not about providing investment. This is an underwriting-led, you know, we're an underwriting business. We're providing underwriting capacity to enhance our underwriting business, but we think, think this is a, a useful uh, add-on to our relationship with, with our partners. Yeah, so I'd just say exactly right. We're not a VC. We're not trying to be, nor will we ever be a VC. We have an underwriting-led approach to investment and innovation, and we do it for three main reasons. We do it because to share in the upside because premiums tend to be a long way down the track, and the first dollar of capacity is worth more than the hundredth. We do it to value our intellectual property that we pour into these relationships, so we work quite closely with all of our partners to make sure that we're bringing the best of Chaucer, which means a lot of our intellectual property does end up in these products and services. Services. And then three, to defend our long-term position, because when these companies become multi-billion dollar companies, it's important for Chaucer to still be to still be re- relevant and compete to, to stay on the panel. And how early would you typically invest? Fairly early, so seed, pre-seed, or sort of series A, but that would really be the end. And then finally, we're delighted to have you uh, as one of our members at Vinstec. We'd love to hear from one of you why you made that decision. <laughs> Absolutely. I think what you guys do better than so many others is you bring together a community and a network of people truly trying to change the world, not just the insurance landscape. And I think that's really, really important because like we said, we're not just sourcing partners from insurance anymore. We absolutely still do, by the way. So, you know, if you're a cool, innovative new partner within insurance, please get in touch. But also I think that you also provide a very different lens on the world. And so, you know, in yes, the the events are great, but also I think that the the catch-ups that we have every month, but also, you know, the the content that you produce, it's so important to have a very, very different take on the world. So thank you. And thank you very much for your support. I'm gonna let you get back to your day job, but and we'll hopefully we'll see you on stage soon. But thank you both very much. Thank you, Thank you. you. Well, you can catch the highlights of that podcast on video at www.instec.co or on the Instec podcast YouTube channel. Now, we're delighted to have Chaucer as one of our core members. And if you're interested in finding out what else we're up to beyond just the podcast, then take a look at the website or contact any of us. Hello at instec.co. That's it. We're done.